up guys it's michael from the honest youth pastor here today with the first of five videos where we're looking at critical race theory race and ethnicity within the church and how that all kind of comes together and what that looks like uh, from the a worldly perspective versus a christian perspective and kind of the little bit in the middle so today we're going to be looking at the book white fragility and there's a couple things that i want to cover before we get into this the first one is that i listen to the audio book version of this right uh, because of my commute and the time that i have given during the day to actually commit to this project uh, I had to listen to the book. Now, I didn't just listen through it once. I just want to make clear that this will be the standard for every book that we cover in this little series where I listened to it the first time all the way through, not taking any notes. The second time I listened through it through taking kind of notes of the things that really stuck out to me the second time. And then the third time listening through it, uh, taking detailed notes about, okay, you know, more of a summary of the chapter and the high points as well. So we have a kind of a fuller grasp of what was said. Um, there's kind of two purposes of for me to read this book. The first one's going to be just have a basic understanding of what it covers, right? This book was brought out as uh, something that uh, uh, must read, right? Um, not only before 2020, but especially during 2020. I mean, it was really, really talked about after uh, everything that happened with George Floyd. So this was a book that's basically pivotal to the culture, whether it's agreed with and accepted or not. Um, this is something that was pushed and sold a ton to try to understand this issue. And it was informing people's conversations, their decisions, how they interact with the world. And therefore, I kind of want to have an understanding of what it says. Also, I want to have an understanding of what it says so I can have this conversation with people in regards to um, their worldview and how they're processing different things because, uh, and we're going to see this in a minute, definitions matter and this book redefines quite a few different things that are brought up in conversation when we talk about race and ethnicity. So um, this will be, again, a wider, uh, this is one view of a much wider topic we're going to be covering. As these videos get done, I'll put them in the links to the description. So after you're done with this one, if you're interested in another book or the the the, the final video, um, th those links will be in the description below. So important definitions to cover here um, that we're going to look at. Obviously, I'm not going to mention all of these definitions as we cover the chapters, um, but if you were to read this book, these are the definitions that are important and you really need to understand because they inform how she, how D'Angelo writes this book. One of them, probably the most important one, is the racial status quo. She says this quite a bit. And the racial status quo is essentially just uh, whiteness, but whiteness as attributed to the color of your skin and being part of you know, a group of white people. Um, it's anything associated with power structures, the grouping of people uh, of, of, of whiteness. And again, this, this kind of goes outside. It's more of your identity, how, how somebody looks at you right away is if you're white or not. Uh, racial stamina. Uh, we won't cover this a lot in the review itself, but she does bring it up a couple times. It's basically one's ability to cope with racism. Um, the idea that uh, she mentions, and we'll kind of briefly talk on this a little bit later in a, in a further down the line chapter, but this idea that white people don't have um, a lot of racial stamina. So whenever somebody accuses you of racism, you're like you 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 push back right away. Whereas people of color have had to deal with racism for a while, so it's one of those things that they've dealt with, uh, but they're a little worn out from. So this is kind of the way she uses that term. Uh, socialization. This is an important one. It also a word we'll cover here in a minute. Kind of ties together with this. But socialization is basically just how you were how you were taught to process the world. And she connects this very tightly 
to to race in regards to if you are uh, part of this ethnicity then you were taught this way and if you were part of this ethnicity you were taught this way and she almost locks locks you into that but we'll talk a little bit about that here in a minute uh, culturalism cultural racism is ties into socialization in regards to that kids are taught uh, white supremacy and we'll talk about that here in a minute uh, habitus is one of the things she she spends a great deal of time on and we'll, we'll definitely cover this one and when we're looking at one of the chapters but it's the way one's background and socialization then inform how we interact with the world uh, privilege equals power here white supremacy is white power structures um, and then adverse racism is uh, the idea that, of how someone reacts and again we'll get into this a little bit more but the idea is that um, even if you aren't outwardly racist, you are adversely racist because there are things you do that are socially acceptable but are also racist. Uh, white solidarity plays into adverse racism in the fact that it's like this unspoken agreement to uphold and protect one's privilege. So she kind of uh, talks about this whenever somebody, maybe like your crazy uncle, tells a racist joke. Like you don't correct them because you're trying to uphold this idea of solidarity among, among your race. Um, a meritocracy or meritocracy she she mentions a few times we won't get into this a lot she doesn't like it's not a whole chapter it's just sort of put in in places throughout the book but the idea is that um, meritocracy is in which people are they get jobs based on their uh, their you know their abilities they they obtain power and they're successful because of the things that they're able to do as far as talents and whatnot she very much downplays this throughout uh, we'll talk about this here in a little bit but um, she, she basically connects meritocracy to democracy and capitalism uh, where all of these things are bad uh, and they're all connected to whiteness racialized trauma uh, we'll cover this in the last about three chapters in this book. But racialized trauma is the trauma that one carries with you based upon the things done to your ancestors before, right? So uh, if you're you know, a person of color, then uh, all of the racism perpetrated against people of color throughout time, you then carry that with you. Whereas uh, the superiority and the, uh, the power of you know maybe uh, white people you carry that with you because that was your ancestry as well that wouldn't be trauma that would just be something that you get passed down with uh racial projecting we, she doesn't cover this a lot but the idea here is we'll cover it i think it's in chapter seven or eight uh, where she basically says that you feel guilty or angry and therefore you project that on other people um particularly white people you would project your anger upon on people of color and then you presume that that's how they're reacting towards you even though that's how you're reacting toward them it's it's an important definition to understand though the white equal equilibrium i can't say that word uh, we'll talk about this especially when we get into the chapters of white fragility but it's basically a cocoon of comfort during a time of white fragility that's her definition the idea that you um you, you want to maintain a balance and you want to maintain your superiority and your power. So you will then just come in on yourself um, in order to keep that happening. So chapter one here, she starts off and states that the book is uh, written for progressive white people that don't think they're racist. So this is her target audience. Um, it's interesting that this is her target audience all the way through actually, but that Though this is her audience, she actually applies it to literally everyone else. 
The, the underlying purpose of the book, though, is to unsettle the racial status quo, which we've already talked about, the racial status quo being whiteness and power and um, supremacy. And uh, I'm sorry, what what? Pe what white people, that's what it's supposed to say. Uh, uh, people are racist, not in the classical sense. And this is where racism really, she, she starts redefining racism from the beginning in which she says that racism isn't this, this outward showing. It's really this being a part of a system of whiteness is what makes you racist. So even if you don't think you are, the fact that you are white uh, defaultly uh, makes you racist. Uh, and this, this starts with building her, her whole premise here that, um, it's not that people are individuals. It is that we are, all of us, part of collective groups of individuals. And as such, we operate within these groupings and we can't really break out of them. There's no, there's no indication given in chapter one or the rest of the book that there's a way to break out of this grouping or that you are at all individualistic. Um, all of your actions and your thoughts are tied back to your, 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 your ra racial and ethnicity, uh, that grouping that you're a part of. Um, and that everything in this book is separated between whiteness and people of color. Uh, and basically, when she says people of color, though, she's specifically dealing, she, she touches on Hispanic uh, a little, but her primary, her primary group is whiteness versus blackness. And we'll see that in the chapters. I mean, she, there's, no, there's no hiding that. That's exactly what she's talking about. Chapter two, she begins to set the stage for racism and white supremacy. So she talks about the fact that this is who I'm writing the book to. This is, you know, why I'm writing this book. And she starts off the very first going into chapter two, redefining racism and defining what white supremacy is. So that, uh, you know, again, the whole premise of the book is that you're racist and you don't know it. So now I have to define how you're racist and why you are part of this white supremacy system. Uh, she does start talking about Thomas Jefferson and the whole scientific where he was like uh, he commissioned scientists to, to distinguish white people from black people intelligent level wise but she really moves in very quickly into uh, this being created by the census in America and creating the creation of a white class uh, her whole argument seems to hinge on this 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 idea that whenever the census started being taken and groups of ethnicity started being broken down, that's when white supremacy really kind of took hold because now there's this white class. And this white class really pushes this idea of white supremacy, this, this whiteness that you're a part of because of your skin color. This white class is translated into terms of whiteness that she uses the entire rest of the book. So every time she talks about whiteness, it is this grouping of people, which again, as she ended chapter one talking about how no one's individualistic and everybody's part of a group, she just kind of backs that up and sells that point more by saying, well, look, you're part of this white class. And because you're part of this white class, you are then now going to be associated with some other things. Because of whiteness, white people are now you know, elevated culturally above everyone else. The idea that they're the majority, then they are elevated up uh, above all other people this gives because they are elevated up because whiteness is elevated up the idea is that um, it, it now has privilege and power because whiteness is controlling everything uh, the privilege and power allows whites to control uh, the social norms of what is considered normal uh, consider the the media consumption as far as newspaper and media uh, and all other outlets of information so now that white uh, whiteness as a class, and it's the biggest class, it then defaultly becomes the class that can you know, dictates everything else down. Um, 
this is where she first distinguishes that it doesn't matter someone's economical status. The very fact that they are white then puts them into this, this white class. Uh, again, going back to the census and you checked a box and so now you're part of this group. And because you're part of this group, you now are connected to this sense of privilege and power and uh, ability above everyone else. Um, this is kind of, again, she'll touch on this later, but the idea of reverse racism, she says, it can't be a reality given the fact that you can't be, uh, you, no one can be racist against you because you are white. And it doesn't matter if your income level is very, very low. Um, the very fact that you're white gives you a privilege uh, um, above everyone else. So you can have a person of color that makes $70,000 a year and a white person that makes $25,000 a year. You can have them uh, in you know, <clears throat> a good education system and you can have the white person in a very poor education system. And then she says that if these two people were to walk into the same building for the same job, then the white man would automatically be considered over the black man just because of skin color. Uh, which again, I, this argument seems to fall apart very quickly for me, but that's the premise that she sets up, that it's based on, it doesn't matter that he makes less money, that he is less educated, that, um, and, and the other man is more educated and makes more money. Automatically, she says that, that that's, that's how they're seen. Uh, and this is kind of the setting up of the rest of the book. Chapters one, two, and three are very long. And you'll kind of see that in the slides as well. This whiteness gives way to white supremacy, which is systems of privilege set up to benefit the white person. The idea here is that uh, if one is white, they participate in these systems uh, without knowledge or even doing so. So within that example of the poor white man versus uh, the, the, the affluent black man, um, this poor white man participates in a system of white supremacy without even knowing he's doing so because of his skin color alone. Um, Racism, she states then, is a structure and not an event. So this, the white man would defaultly be racist, not because he's done anything uh, against a person of color, but simply because of who he is. Uh, this sets up the, the norm for the rest of the book that because he's part of this class or this system, then he automatically is given a certain privilege and a certain power um, and regardless of what he does, he's participating in this system, knowledgeably or unknowledgeably, because of, of that. There's implications that come along with his skin color. Uh, she connects the idea of white supremacy directly to skin color, as I've already said, but these things are also connected to democracy and capitalism, uh, which are seen as not great things, uh, because not because they're not great things in and of themselves, but because they've been connected to whiteness, they are automatically considered bad. Um, she uses this evidence to show that the, the top earners in America, the richest people in America are white men. Therefore, because they're white men, they have power and privilege. They've been able to rise to that because democracy and capitalism are built for white men. Because again, there's this automatic power structure that's, um, that's not balanced and therefore that's why um, democracy and capitalism are bad is because they only privilege white men. Um, so these white men use, the, use democracy and capitalism and their power to then define what is good and what is bad. Uh, obviously still using the media to instill in people this idea of racial hi hierarchy, which is she, she claims is really just this perpetuation of what's been going on uh, since the beginning of America. 
Now, chapter three and four are tied together. They, uh, chapter three covers the civil rights movement and chapter four covers uh, how uh, race shapes the lives of white people. Both of these are fairly short, but can I combine them because I think they're tied together pretty closely. Uh, she mentions how whiteness is the norm by giving examples of people saying that black guy, but never saying that white guy, because she's, again, whiteness is kind of assumed here, right? Um, because of the civil rights movements and because of how white people um, interact with race, her assumption is that like whiteness is normalized and is racial status quo. I don't feel like this really holds up um, if because, again, if you're interacting within structures that uh, are not uh, racially diverse, people are going to use uh, maybe race. Uh, they might use how, I mean, how you look, your hair color, your body type to define and point out who you are to other people. Now in a more uh, integrated setting, that still might happen, but really I think in a more integrated setting, you're just gonna start, you're just gonna use names uh, for people or job titles or things like that. Um, which again, may or may not play to her point, but the idea is that I think this happens, this isn't um, specifically within whiteness to me. Uh, the, I, I went to college and uh, lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, I was referred to the white guy as the white guy. So it's one of those things that I think that this varies by where you live and the people that you're around. So her norm, she's assuming the norm uh, is whiteness because of maybe that she's around a lot of white people all the time. Like the, the, the assumption just really, it's really built on like this really shaky ground, um, in my opinion. Uh, but she, what she's saying is because norm, the norm is whiteness, it then creates this unspoken we, they boundary between races and ethnicities. Uh, again, she's going back to the civil rights movement and then how white people, you know, talk about race a little bit. Uh, and she's saying that there's the, this default we, they speak, which then divides us further apart. Uh, this boundary is maintained when white people don't speak up when racist comments remain. So the idea is that, again, going back to this whole your racist uncle says something and you don't say anything that just kind of builds the wall higher as a, well, we act this way and they act that way. Uh, and there's this we, they barrier that's built up that's, that's sort of built into again i mean you have to this is these chapters aren't by themselves this is a, a systemized thought process that we're going through that because whiteness is a thing whenever you don't speak up against it that we they language is just strengthened and therefore white supremacy and whiteness is upheld uh upheld still uh, she again uses uh, as an example all the white people that have privilege and maintain white solidarity again white solidarity an important definition from the beginning of this video uh, about you know maintaining the status quo she also states that this demonstrates uh, adverse racism in that when we don't speak up we are participating in white supremacy we've already talked about both of those things uh, she ends chapter four by saying that we are all socialized into racism uh, and it's kind of cemented a bit more because of the we, they language. So this idea that we're socializing, and she'll talk a, a whole lot more about that here in, in upcoming chapters, but this idea that it's sort of, as we grow up and we hear this language, we automatically assume that this is the right way to do things and that there's a we and there's a they. Um, and that kind of perpetuates um, white supremacy. Now, when we get into chapter five, she assumes that there are people that, uh, don't think that they're racist and are going to start pushing back against this, right? So she set up the idea that, you know, everyone's racist. 
uh, well, that racism is not a, not an action, but a people group that you're a part of, um, that white supremacy is defaultly connected to power and privilege. And if you are part of the white class, then you are a part of this white supremacy and this racism. And by the time we get to chapter five, there's, she knows that there's going to be pushback on this. So she starts talking about something, um, that she defines as the good by bad binary. Now, again, you have to understand that this white, uh, this white fragility book is specifically written to white people that don't think they're racist. So by the time we get to chapter five, she starts trying to break down this idea that there are good people and there are bad people and the good people aren't racist and the bad people are racist. And she's trying to break down this, um, this, you know, this idea. Now, oddly enough, um, this, this connects a bit to Christianity in the regards that she's trying to um, show that all people or all white people uh, are racist. Uh, and then she connects racism, obviously, to, to bad, to not preferred. And the, the odd thing here is that though D'Angelo is operating from a, a non-Christian worldview, she does at least recognize, even if it's a, it's a broken way to see it, that all people do have prejudice. Now, what she does do is here, she shifts it very heavily on whiteness, but she doesn't, she doesn't uh, provide a solution to this. So the Christian worldview would say, yes, we're all defaultly sinners and that we have this prejudice toward other people and we need Jesus in order to change our hearts and our minds in order to be able to uh, interact in his world and his kingdom in the way that we ought to do. Um, D'Angelo picks up on that idea when she starts talking about the good by bad binary, but she shifts everybody in a certain uh, ethnicity into the you know this bad binary and doesn't talk about it anywhere past that. You're just here. You're just in the bad binary. Sorry for your luck. It's part of your uh, white privilege. So it's not really bad luck for you because you have power anyway. So get over yourself. And so this is this is where she breaks it down that anybody that's saying, well, yeah, I understand there's racism. There's good guys and bad guys. I'm not racist. That person is. Um, so she starts breaking that down. She uses this section of the book to redefine again what racism and racist mean. She states that everyone has prejudice, but prejudice doesn't equal racism. And this is what's very important. This is where she really shifts this and defines it into what might be considered. She doesn't ever use the word critical race theory, but this is where those, those kind of roots start coming out a lot more. Um, racism is only something that can be held and demonstrated by someone in a point in a, in a place of power and privilege, right? So because whiteness is connected to power and privilege and because whiteness is white supremacy and it has power and privilege over all other people, then white people are defaultly racist. Now, this is very important in her definition. People of color can have prejudice against other peoples and other ethnicities, but it can never be defined as racism to her because they don't hold any power uh, over these people. So you can hold prejudice against people, but it never becomes racism until you are the one that's in power over someone else oppressing them. And that's when it becomes racism. So hopefully that's clear. She, she, def she ties race, uh, she ties racism to white people specifically. And that's why as a white person, you are defaultly, like, it doesn't matter if you do anything or you don't do anything, you're automatically racist. Um, 
And this is where it also comes in, the, the oppressed oppressor category comes in, which again kind of connects back to critical race theory a bit, is that there is no good and bad, there is only oppressed and oppressor. So obviously, as I mean, she's defining up to this point, anybody that fits into the white class category is part of a white supremacy system, which is defaultly racist, and therefore you are the oppressor, and therefore you are bad. Uh, and that's, that's where we leave it. Um, uh, she does say that this is the mentality. Um, this mentality is the bedrock of America. She says this a few times. It's basically built into the foundation. There's no way to get around it. That there is an oppressor oppressed, and whiteness is always the always has been the oppressor in this in this scenario. Now we're moving into chapter six. Um, so having established the white class, then equals white supremacy, then showing that all white people are part of this white supremacy, then demonstrating how white supremacy is upheld with, uh, within the society, she moves on to the idea of anti-blackness. So there's this idea for D'Angelo that if there's going to be this whiteness, there has to be something to, to counterbalance it. So if whiteness is always going to be seen as powerful and good to the white person, there has to be something to counterbalance that and be the bad. And this is where the... The oppressor oppressed thing comes back to play really hard, um, saying that you have to have anti-blackness in order to have whiteness. This idea that there's got to be a balance there. Um, she contends a very odd thing here in chapter six that the white collective, so all of white people, subconsciously hate black people because it reminds them of what white people did in the past as far as slavery and things of that nature. And because of that not so happy past, then well, the white collective of white people now, we now subconsciously hate black people, she says, because we, we remind, they remind us of what we're capable of. And it's a, it's a weird dynamic. I'm not sure why she goes there, um, but that's her claim. So anti-blackness, she says, is propitiated by movies, social media, other media sources. This whole anti-blackness being that black is bad, white is good. That's the idea that she's that she's working through. Um, she, she paints this picture of a typical black man as dangerous, right? So this idea that if the typical white man is going to be good and upstanding and, you know, all things right, then he has to have a counterbalance as the black man being dangerous and bad. And this is where she... she uses a pretty long, uh, good portion of chapter six to use the blind side of the movie about um, uh, the white family bringing in uh, the, the black kid from uh, his neighborhood and him being a really good uh, football player and him going on to be success. And she, she uses this as an example of anti-blackness being spread where the white family in the movie actually is the saviors, quote unquote, of this, this poor black child. Um, she does state that the movie sets up this dynamic that the adults within this black neighborhood uh, have, you know, they're, they're evil, they're bad, whereas the children can still be saved even though their intelligence level is really low. Like this, this is how she sort of sets up this idea that the white saviors come in and save the children because they don't know any better. Um, it, 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 there's this whole dynamic in chapter six where this, this, she breaks down this idea in chapter five of good, bad binary, and then she moves automatically into six saying, okay, well, you're part of the bad, and because you are bad, you need to feel better, and because you need to feel better, therefore you then make anti-blackness so you can make yourself feel better. That's kind of the, the flow of the chapters here. Now, 
in chapter seven, she seems to assume that everything up to this chapter is going to have triggered some people because now she's really pushing in on this idea that you are like, by the time you get to chapter seven, it's you, if you are a white person, you are horrible, you are racist. And because you're horrible and racist and because you know, you're horrible and racist, you're automatically going to try to make yourself feel better um, by making other people the, the bad people and you the good people. And she knows that's going to you know, quote unquote trigger some people, she says, um, in the book. So then she moves on and she spends a great deal of time on this uh, habitus, this idea of habitus. So as we talked about before, uh, the definition of habitus is how you were, how you grew up, um, what you were taught. And then those things now interact, ha affecting how you interact with um, society and the people around you. And she spends a great deal of time on saying you were socialized into this idea of racism. You were brought up in this. And now that's how you interact with society. And anytime that is questioned or affected, you start to get um, uh, like really tense. And this is where she starts really pushing in on the idea of white fragility. She says that white fragility begins to occur when one's habitus and habits are disrupted by change or stress. So as soon as somebody says, hey, this is you, and this is you referring to chapters one through six here. Uh, she says that automatically that stress and that challenge and that change starts starts really um, aggravating white people. So by the time we get to chapter six, this is a chapter she really gets into the idea of the title of the book being White Fragility. Everything up to this point has really just been a primer to get you to this point, this idea that you, you don't realize you're racist, but you definitely are racist because you're part of this white class, which is also white supremacy. And now you, you effectively benefit from all of this power and this privilege and this cultural, uh, this cultural normalization of the racial status quo. And because of that, you need to realize that. But when you realize that, you're going to feel really bad about yourself. And because you feel really bad about yourself, you're going to make other people the bad people and you the good people. And when I push up on that, she says, you're going to get a little aggravated. So in this chapter, she really gets into the idea of white fragility and what that looks like and why it's problematic. Uh, she contends that white people see themselves as individuals and not as a group, but being a group is actually how we should see each other. This points back to the previous chapters where she's talked about the groupings of people together. She also touches again here on the idea of reverse racism, saying that there are people that um, whenever your habitus is affected and your social norm is affected, you will automatically then start playing the victim card because um, you know you don't feel the power and the privilege anymore and therefore you automatically feel traumatized as the victim and she says that's that's white fragility is the idea that you've always had the power and the privilege and anytime that's pushed on a little bit you then become very defensive uh, and start pushing back now this all leads to again the idea that we're going to get into of white fragility it's important to understand how she defines white fragility. She defines white fragility as the sociology of dominance, meaning that when one acts out in opposition to the claims made that she showed in previous chapters, they, she act, they actually prove her claims of racism against them. So as soon as she says, you're racist, this is what it looks like. You've grown up in this system. You have this power and privilege. It doesn't matter at all where you came from. It's your skin color alone that defines that for you. Um, she says when she pushes in on that, automatically the idea is, no, I'm not. And she goes, actually, you saying you're not shows that you are, right? That, that's, that's kind of the premise. Um, in these cases of white fragility, it reinforces racism by taking the attention, she says. So uh, in these cases, white fragility reinforces racism by taking the attention off of the black stories and putting the attention back onto the white stories by claiming victimhood. This idea that anytime 
uh, black stories are told um, about history or about what's happened cur currently culturally, she says automatically people um, that experience white fragility will then say, well, no, I'm not racist. Uh, let's talk about me and not this situation. And what she's saying is that it, it's, again, the reason it's white fragility is because it's, it's the sociology of dominance. So it's saying if we're not talking about me at this point, we're talking about something else. We need to talk about me and, my, and how I react to this now. Uh, and she says that's, that's kind of the problematic part of white fragility. Now, we do move on to chapters 9 and 10 here. Both of these chapters are very, very short. Uh, they cover the actions of white fragility as well as how to engage in white, uh, engage white fragility when it's demonstrated. Uh, chapter 9 can basically be summed up by the statement, if you disagree with me, you're proving my point. She spends uh, a short amount of time in chapter 9. Like I said, it's not a very long chapter, but she talks about how if you are defensive about any of the things that she stated. Like if you present any argument at all, you're automatically proving her point. It doesn't matter if you, your point is valid or not. Like if you have defense at all to what she's saying, you are proving that you're a racist. Uh, she leaves no room to discuss anything that was presented in chapter eight. And then in chapter 10, she speaks of the acceptance of white fragility and welcoming the criticisms and feedbacks that comes with that. Now, in chapter 10, I will say this. I think that, and this is where a lot of people, I think, that maybe read this book connect to certain parts of this book. Because I said at the beginning, there, there are certain things here that she touches on that are real. And, but we'll talk about it here at the end. But the application and how she interacts with those things are a bit odd. So it, taking feedback on your actions is a healthy thing to do. But she, she's talking about as soon, that if you disagree with me, you're proving that you are a racist, so you just need to take that feedback and not I mean, you just take it. Like, don't argue with it. You're a racist. You need to deal with it. There you go. Now, chapter 11, she's assuming at this point that um, all of this is built up. You've had your white fragility moment or moments or you're still having white fragility, but you've accepted the fact that you're a racist and that you've reacted in a, in a white, fragile manner, and now you're accepting the feedback. So the question then becomes... Um, she speaks how we, the reactions of white fragility, but specifically focuses on white liberal women. Now, for whatever reason, in chapter 11 here, she really goes in hard on white liberal women. Um, honestly, you could have cut all of chapter 11 out and it wouldn't have affected the book in any way. Like, it seems like it was added because of some situation she went through. But she says that the way white women react emotionally to events dealing with racism and ethnicity is problematic. Um, she directly ties uh, white women's tears to historical events that have happened in the people, uh, in the, specifically in black history, and how those bring up emotions in, in black women specifically, but the black community in general, and how that it's a triggering thing for the black community. So as a white woman reacts by crying to a racial or ethnicity issue that's happening culturally, She's trying to be sympathetic, D'Angelo says, but she's actually be, being a problem for uh, those that are around here that are, that are black because those are bringing up racial traumas in the past. Um, though it is not touched on very long in the chapter, she also does speak of white men, but she says that basically white men react to white fragility with anger. That's basically, <laughs> that's, their, that's white men's only reaction to white fragility is anger and lashing out. Now in chapter 12, this is where she brings the, you know, what do we do with all this? So, Assuming that um, 
you know, we understand that uh, whiteness is then connected to white supremacy and white supremacy is connected to power and power is connected to, you know, setting the cultural norms and setting the cultural norms because you don't, you know, you, you are the good, then you have to have a bad. And since black is bad and white is good, then uh, you're, you're built in just because you're white into these, this, you know, this, this system. And because this system is there, when you're confronted with this system, you automatically push back with white fragility and you react by saying, you know, you're, you're being racist on me and you become the victimhood when you should really just accept all of that criticism and that, that reality, D'Angelo says, then we get to this point, right? So chapters one through 11 have built us up to this point. So she closes the book. Where do you go from, where do you, what do you do from here? Um, so if we've established all of those things are true, right? If that's kind of the acceptance that we've got up to chapter 12, her general rule is to apply all the things she's talked about in the book to ourselves. She uses herself as an example here numerous times, basically just showing how, you know, she's racist and how she's done racist things and how she's defaultly racist no matter what she does because she's white. Um, it is more nuanced, though. She actually recommends that white people acknowledge and understand that they are socialized into a multi-layered system of racism built into the foundations of America. Uh, so essentially what she's saying is if you're white, you can't help being racist because it's always been that way. So you're always you've been taught that way and therefore you act that way and you need to understand that. She recommends that what white uh, that she recommends that white people, I put what people, that white people understand they have implicit bias when they're dealing with anyone that isn't white. So the idea is that you've been socialized into this, this system, you're white, therefore you have power and privilege, therefore you are part of this racist white supremacy system that is built into the foundation of America that you, it's just there, there's nothing you can do about it. And that because of all of this socialization, when you interact with anybody outside of whiteness, you have implicit bias because they're not white. And then she recommends that in reaction to that, um, white people practice intersectionality in their lives. So they deliberately put themselves in places um, in which they interact with people of color and learn about people, other people's cultures and their norms and um, all of the things that you know are part of that culture. So that's how we end. So here's my overall thoughts on the book. The book itself brings up some good points in regards to sociology, right? So there's certain things that D'Angelo says throughout this book that I think are actually helpful in regards to there are certain things that we grow up in that we do see things a certain way. And because we see things a certain way, we then interact with the world because of that. I think our whole thing about habitus is, is a valid point. Like the way that you're taught then affects how you interact with other people. I think her application, and this is my second sentence, um, it's reaction and solution to those grievances, though, that she points out in society, I think fall short of being helpful. Um, she puts all of the weight on one ethnicity and then makes that distinction of this is the oppressor and these are the oppressed, and therefore, like, that's the categories you're in. Now, has there systematically in America been, like, oppressor or oppressed, like this imbalance? Uh, I, I think if you look at history, it's undeniable that like horrible things have happened. However, to assume that the solution to do that is to uh, put yourself in a place and be like, no, no, I'm a horrible individual. Everybody else is better here. Take everything that I have. Um, and again, she doesn't quite say that, but that's like the that's the idea is that you if you're white, you are now to understand that you are guilty of all sins of, of 
that part of your group in your class like even if you've never done anything you're a part of this system and therefore you're guilty of all of the sins of the people that have done these things uh, she just heaps the guilt of your your generation or your uh, your ancestors on top of you um, so though I think she brings up some very good social points um, as far as how people interact with one another why they interact that way what drives them to do the things they do I think that she takes that really good premise and then zeroes in on a certain group of people that being white people and says this is where all the problem is uh, and she she puts all this implicit sin on one ethnicity and says nobody else out here like they have prejudice but it's not as bad as your prejudice um, which is this gets to the last point uh, in an attempt to uncover partiality within America she actually serves to create more partiality by building up the walls of race and ethnicity so uh, she does talk a good part, which we didn't cover a lot here. It's kind of sprinkled throughout the book about how this idea that white people want to see, you know, will say, uh, I don't see color. Uh, and I would agree with her in the sense that that's not super helpful because it does kind of downplay the idea that there are different cultures and different ideas and different norms, uh, depending on where you come from culturally. But I think she, again, takes that way too far in the sense that, um, it's important to see other people's cultures and other people's norms, but to assume that one person's is all good or all bad just doesn't quite work out. Um, the book itself, it's an answer that comes from a non-Christian worldview. And I think it's, more specifically, it's a worldview that specifically comes from a, a, a white perspective that seems to be very weighed down with guilt. Uh, D'Angelo throughout the book seems to acknowledge the fact that she has guilt about her whiteness and the past of what's happened as far as slavery and disenfranchisement of certain people at certain times. And she's weighing all of that on her shoulders. And her reaction to that seems to be this book to be to to point out and be like hey look white people i'm part of your group and because i'm white as well like this is all of the problems of the world and we have to solve them and uh or the problems of america and now it's our job to solve them and from a non-christian perspective this is probably one of the better worldviews that's going to come out of it right i mean this is and what i mean by better worldviews is, is this is all a non-christian worldview can present as an answer Whereas, and we're going to look, in this, look into this a bit more as we go through this series, but a, a, a biblical worldview would say that all people are sinners, all people are in need of a Savior, and we're all partial, and we all need to have Jesus come in and change our hearts and our minds so we are not partial toward others, and that we treat everyone with the Imago Dei, this, this image of God, and we treat them all as creations of God. Everybody, doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, you are uh, created in God's image and therefore you have dignity and worth and you should be treated that way. Um, that would be the Christian worldview and how to interact with people. D'Angelo seems to, um, obviously she has a non-Christian worldview, but she, she takes that non-Christian worldview and says, this is how you should interact with the world if you're white. If you're white, you then interact with the world with this idea that, um, you know, you acknowledge that you have power and privilege and therefore you've been an oppressor to other people even if you didn't know you were you are and you need to take all of this sin and this guilt on top of you and you now are the savior to make it right by lowering yourself and and, and correcting all of the ills of the past um i think where it connects with people 
is that there is this understanding that wrongs have been committed. Like things have been done that are just deplorable and despicable and should have never happened. But this book seems to heap all of that back on uh, people that have never committed those things and say, now you're responsible for those things. Now go fix those things. So the overall thoughts of the book is that I think, again, it brings up some good social things that need to be looked at, but then takes those and applies them to all to one ethnicity and says, you are the bane of the existence of everyone else in this country. And because you are the bane of existence, you need to shut up. You need to accept that. And you need to, 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 to do everything you can to fix this problem. Um, and again, from a non-Christian worldview, I can see why people would take the book and be like, no, this is really good. But if you have a biblical worldview, I don't see how it's at all compatible with what she says. Are there parts where she, she gets things right? Yeah, there's a sprinkling of stuff where she talks about, you know, the ills and injustices and oppressor and oppressed and what that looks like and the problems that that causes. But her application of those things are non-biblical and therefore don't line up with the biblical worldview at all. So as a Christian, I would say that it's beneficial to read this book in as much as that you'll have a clearer picture on what a non-biblical worldview on race is and ethnicity is. Um, but I don't think it's going to add anything at all to uh, your worldview in regards to how to deal with race and ethnicity. In fact, all it's going to do is show you that the world's definition of certain things are much different than God's definition of certain things, right? As far as ethnicity and race and uh, pride and uh, all of those things, like it, these definitions are night and day different. So as far as this book, I want to, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not going to say you should never read a book. I'm just saying that if you do read this book, the only beneficial thing you're going to get from this, if you are a Christian is that, um, that you're going to see like a distinct difference between a biblical worldview and a, and a cultural worldview. Um, if you're not careful, and this is where I would, this is the one caution I would give, especially if you're in high school or in college and you're reading this book and you're developing your worldview, I would do this in community with people that are mature. Um, because if not, I can easily see somebody, I can see the college version of myself reading this book and coming away thinking like I am responsible for everything bad that's ever happened because I'm white and I need to fix all of that and taking the focus off of Christ being the savior and trying to fix everything myself because I'm the one that's responsible and wronged everybody and therefore I must fix everything. I think this book could, if you don't have a very well developed worldview, this book could, could, <laughs> could do some real damage. Um, so all that being said, this is part one of a five-part series. Uh, we'll also be covering uh, three other books in this series, and those videos will come out um, as well throughout. And if you want to view those videos, if they're done, the links will be in the description below there. Please comment. Uh, what did you think of the book? Do you think I gave an accurate representation? I was trying to be as balanced as possible, uh, give a very honest reading of it, while also kind of pushing back against the parts that I think weren't necessarily um, right when they come in contact with the biblical worldview. Um, hopefully I did that well. Let me know by leaving a comment, a like, or if, uh, you know, you found this to be incredibly helpful, you can share it with other people. That would be, uh, that would be awesome. So guys, thank you for checking this out. Please come back for the rest of the videos in the series. I'll talk to you later.